Hope you have your Bible with you this morning. We have Bibles in the pew if you do not. But I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Luke's Gospel. If you're not familiar with where Luke is, that's in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the third book in the New Testament and one of the Gospels. And a very uh, famous Christmas passage, Luke chapter 2. If you were with us this past week uh, for our Christmas celebration or the previous week's Saturday before uh, the icy weather rolled in, uh, you were with us to hear truth set to beautiful music. And we had two very wonderful services and had a few moments uh, to talk at the end about some very important themes having to do with Christmas and how that the prophets in the Old Testament chose to describe Christmas as light coming into a dark world. And we talked about the theme that we know very well, light versus darkness, and the fact that the Christmas child, Jesus, born in Bethlehem, would be described as a light to illumine the darkness, to chase away all the things that are hidden in the darkness. And we talked about those themes for a few moments. And then when we left, one thing to think about was how that some gifts at Christmas time are more difficult to receive than others. And usually that has to do with how much we actually need that gift. And if you weren't there, maybe you haven't thought through this before, but suppose someone, day after tomorrow, uh, would give you a piece of exercise equipment. It's one thing if you buy that for yourself, right? But if somebody buys that for you, and we talked about this a week ago, what does that mean? You walk away maybe thinking, maybe they think that I need this. It's difficult to receive, especially if you do need it. <laughs> so thinking along those terms, you, you could make up any sort of idea, perhaps a, a financial gift given to you that you need. It's not because you want to need it or wanted to be in the position that necessitates your need of that, but it might require that you, that you swallow some pride in order to receive it. Because you need it. And what we left those services with was the question. If that's the case. How much pride is necessary that we swallow. In order to receive the gift of the baby born in Bethlehem. Born in order to die. Because we're very much a part of that darkness. The light is here to illuminate. Uh, that's quite a thing to think about. That the baby born into Christmas was because of my sinfulness. It's because I need that. That gift is for me. And in understanding what the gift is all about, we have to think our way through the lostness required to actually receive the gift of grace. That is what is meant by the light of the world in the passage we looked at in John's Gospel. But I ask you to turn to a different passage of Scripture. And uh, this we'll look at, a very well-worn passage of Scripture, Luke 2. But what I want to read is part of this chapter that is not 
read so much in Christmas services. I don't think you'll remember a single song that was put together as a part of this portion of Scripture that we'll read. And maybe that's a good thing because, you know, Christmas and Easter services are probably among the most difficult for pastors. Not because they're... Uh, disinterested in seeing uh, an extra group of people come to church but because they are given the task of teaching the same passage of scripture every year the same passages and uh, to take a leaf out of uh, C.S. Lewis's notes they have to confront the horror of the same old thing what do we say today that wasn't said last year that wasn't said the year before that what have we thought through that hasn't been thought through before and really there's nothing new here but perhaps to try at least make the attempt with the help of the Holy Spirit to look at the same story the same old thing but in a new way not to reinvent it but to look at it from another angle so let's read through this we'll ask ourselves some questions along the way and then I want to Somewhat of a journey through scripture gathering things from other parts of this grand story known as the entire Bible. And how this little piece in Luke 2 fits that grand story. And then where do we fit in all of this. But in Luke chapter 2, and I'll set this up here. We're going to begin reading in verse 25. This took place after the birth of Christ. After the, the shepherds in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. It took place after Mary had pondered these things in her heart. It actually took place after another trip into Jerusalem. On the eighth day where Jesus would be circumcised as any good Hebrew boy would be. And given his name. That's when the name would be given and, and known publicly. A name that Mary or Joseph did not choose but was given by God through the angel a common name Jesus which meant that he would save his people from their sins but this took place on the the 40th day almost a month after and even before the wise men would come by some scholars believe that would be as much as two years later and we know all about that at Christmas time but this is the story of what happened on the second trip to Jerusalem and the reason for that was because of The time of purification. The process of birth would leave a woman ceremonially unclean. And after 40 days of purification, she'd go back to the temple and offer a sacrifice for her purification. Then become ceremonially clean. And the Old Testament gives us all the instructions for this. And the standard sacrifice was a lamb. We're going to learn that Mary and Joseph offered a pair of turtle doves, which was allowed for in the case of poverty, if you couldn't afford the standard lamb. So you can just spend some of those imagination credits here and think what this is like. This baby is barely a month old. This is the second trip into the city, which is about 10 miles journey and required a night's stay. They're making their way through the busy city up to the temple complex. And on the way, it would be required to barter for the sacrifice, which was an embarrassing situation because you're going to the place to buy the poor sacrifice. And then at that point, you've got to go and you've got to watch as these animals lose their life as the blood drains from their body 
all for the purpose of symbolically covering for your sins so that you can be again presentable in the place where God is worshipped and what all's involved and really you just have to almost imagine to put yourself in the place of all this and we pick up that narrative in verse 25 now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel you could say waiting for the Messiah and the Holy Spirit was upon him verse 26 and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ the Messiah verse 27 and he came in the spirit into the temple and when the parents Mary and Joseph brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law we just explained he took him up in his arms pause there for a moment would you turn your baby over someone you'd never met Maybe you could see what's described as full of the Holy Spirit in his eyes. I'm not sure. We didn't want to bring Olivia to church for a month. There's germs at church. And then with Michael, it was a bit different. David, a bit different. With Ben, we just throw the diaper in the bed and you change it. You know, it's different. But this is the firstborn handing the baby over. So just keep imagining. We're reading narrative here. Let the story paint itself in your mind. Verse 25, or 29 rather, Simeon speaking, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light, there it is, for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. They're wondering in astonishment at this that's being said. Now what we've read so far, that is part of the Christmas story that you do hear. And there are parts in liturgy of very organized worship services that involve the very words that are said by this man especially the part where he's now able to die in peace he has seen the salvation of the Lord but then in verse 34 it's as if something's tagged on the end that doesn't even seem to fit misplaced it seems Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother looking only at Mary behold this child is appointed For the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed. Verse 35. You'll notice perhaps some parentheses here. Depending on your translation. A sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That's the part that they don't write songs about. What does this mean for this man to look into the eyes of this new mother and to say these things about her boy and then the final thing having to do with her and a sword and her soul so that thoughts 
in the minds of people could be realized or known? Well, quickly here, three parts of this. Then we'll start doing some exploring. The first part, he says, is actually a paradoxical statement there at the beginning of verse 34. Paradoxical means that it looks as if he's saying two things that don't go together. Appointed for the rise and the fall of many in Israel. Well, which is it? Is he going to rise or is he going to fall? Well, it says it's for both, Simeon says. And the idea here, as in numerous places in the New Testament, is that with Christ, there is no neutrality. When he comes into his kingdom and he begins to teach, and he begins to say the things that his father has told him to say, he begins to lay out who he is and what he's here to do. Two things will happen to those who hear his words. One, they will either recognize him as he is, the Son of God, bow down and submit to him and his authority. Or, they reject those things. But there's no neutrality. In other words, when a person encounters Christ, he's either for him or against him. He either trips over him or established by him. Which fulfills, of course, the prophecy of Simeon. That's what he's saying. There'll be no middle ground with Jesus. The people will love him or they'll hate him. His claims are such that either you bow down because he's king of kings and lord of lords. Or you reject him. And not just reject him because to say such a thing that's not true is blasphemous. And in his people group, worthy of capital punishment. So that's the prophecy she's telling, or he's telling about this woman's child. Secondly, the second part in there about a sign that is opposed, this involves something we studied about in John's gospel. You remember what a sign was. A sign was to point to something clearly, meticulously, without misunderstanding or ambiguity. This is none other than the Son of God. The signs, the miracles that he did, but... Simeon is saying here that the sign of Jesus will actually be opposed. That people will reject the sign that is so clearly seen. And then thirdly, and this is the more Solomon, more personal part of this. And it's what is said, for Mary and Mary alone, a sword will pierce through your own soul. So what in the world is meant by that? Well, the scholars tell us we have options. One is that... Perhaps Mary would also die a martyr's death. That she would be run through with a literal sword. Most of the scholars don't think that this option is viable. We have no record of it in scripture or in extra biblical literature. Others would say, and is more likely, probably the case. That this sorrow is descriptive of the agony she would face by watching her own son die on a a cross at the hand of his own people carried out by Rome. And this is territory where many of us wouldn't even have the capacity to imagine what that would be like. Now, she wouldn't be the only mother that ever watched the execution of their son. And I think that most mothers would probably, if given the opportunity, do that. I was, I was thinking through the other afternoon while studying this, would my mother attend to my execution if given the choice I think she would because I think motherhood's not so different across the ages and cultures there's something about a nine month lead on the rest of the world that ties 
two people together in a way that even words aren't able to describe. So the depth of sorrow certainly could be described by a sword that would pierce her soul. But maybe there's more to it. Maybe there's not. And this is where I think we might could do some exploration. Because that is a very dramatic and vivid word. Is it not a sword? Pass through your soul. Those words are chosen. And there's more to those words than just the idea of a literal sword with a blade and a handle. In fact, throughout scripture, it's a very dramatic word used for very specific things. So for the next few minutes, let's explore our Bibles to color up this picture with these themes that we're already seeing, and perhaps we'll establish a pattern. Do you know where the first occurrence of the word sword is in our Bibles? It's in Genesis, at the end of the creation account, actually at the end of Adam and Eve's stay in the Garden of Eden. And it's descriptive of what happened after their fall, after their disobedience, and after they had been chased away and out of the garden and God's presence. We can read that uh, in Genesis 3 and 24. And I'm going to be reading some passages. You can turn there if you want to. If you want rather make notes so you can look at them later, that uh, might even work better. Um, but leave notes for your, your homework later. In verse 23 of Genesis 3, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Verse 24, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So the first occurrence of that word we read Described to Mary by Simeon, the picture of that, I'm sure to every Hebrew, would at least involve in their memory banks this picture of a flaming sword. The sword was a, 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 an icon, actually, of the, the costs or, or the end or the judgment that would face Adam or Eve should they decide to return to the garden. This would keep them uh, from the tree of life. We're not even given enough information to satisfy all our questions regarding what that's all about. But the sword was there to make sure that this is no longer manageable by you. You're out. The relationship we had before is over. Disobedience has brought sin, and sin is punishable by death. Your bodies are dying And our relationship is dead. So there's this sword that separates God and man that was not there to begin with. But it's there now. So the sword is an emblem of judgment. And what happens if a line in the sand is crossed? So it seems. Now, if I were to ask you where the last occurrence of the word sword is in the Bible. You know where that is. The book of Revelation. Almost at the end. So you've almost got these words bookending the entirety of our scriptures. And where we find that, it's actually used twice in chapter 19 of Revelation at what is described as the last battle on earth before the millennium and before the devil is let loose for a time to 
to, to deceive some and then all be cast into the lake of fire. But this is the last battle. And actually, those who are saved are involved as well. Listen to verse 11 of Revelation 19. I then saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on its uh, on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, as he wears a name written that no one knows but himself. 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. There it is. With which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So the sword from beginning to the end of the Bible is the image of judgment. To exact justice. Because of what happened in a garden involving sin and its penalty which is death. And the wrath of God that is poured out on those who have sinned and is determined to punish it with death. And at the end of the story, we see Jesus himself with this sword doing that very thing. Justice. By meeting out judgment. Pouring out the wrath that God had promised against sin. Now, between those two uses of the word sword, we got one in Genesis and two here in Revelation. There are at least 445 other uses of that word sword. You want to go through each? (laughs) No. But maybe we'll look at some prominent. Because there there seems to be a promise of judgment. And a fulfillment of judgment. At the beginning and the end of the Bible. But then in the middle somewhere. We've got this man telling Mary. A sword will pass through your soul also. In judgment. Will she fall under the sword. That is given to sinners. Or is that not the way we should expect her story or our story to end? Of the use of the word sword in the Old Testament, there's another type or use for a metal object or stone with a sharp edge used to dispatch a living being, whether man or animal. We learn in the Old Testament what we read earlier at lighting the candle and what we read Mary and Joseph are doing with the two turtle doves it was known as the sacrificial system you know from Sunday school what this is all about and imagine how bizarre that would be for us today that all over America people are meeting in different places to drag an animal somewhere to kill it in order to have some form of covering that would guarantee them position before God in heaven But that is exactly what God told them to do. The first time we see the sacrificial system officially given to the people of Israel by God, it was at, and if you remember your Bible movies, remember the Ten Commandments? 
You remember the night before they left Egypt and the death angel that would come by? And days earlier they'd been told to reserve a lamb and make sure he's spotless. And then you kill that lamb with a knife. And you reserve its blood and you put that on the doorpost and on the lintel. That's the top part. And when the, the, the judgment angel, the death angel would come by to punish Egypt for its wickedness. If the blood was on the door, what would the angel do? Passover. They call that Passover. Now, you can already see the, the picture here. Judgment is not falling on the inhabitants of the household. Judgment fell on the otherwise innocent animal who died in order to cover the house. And even before that, we saw this in places in the scripture. How do you suppose Adam and Eve got those skins that they wore as clothing after the first version made out of fig leaves fell apart? An animal died. Likely more than one. And likely that was the first time Adam and Eve ever saw the life drained from an animal. And watch something actually die. Maybe death isn't just some word. Maybe it's real. What he said would happen to us is happening to this animal in our place. To be provisionally covered by its blood in some way. Do you remember the other story that we get to before the Ten Commandments? You remember Abraham and Isaac? You remember how that all worked out? And how bizarre it would be for God to promise this man a multitude. He gives him one son, an only son, and then says, I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. But he was willing to do it, wasn't he? He had the knife in the air. You remember the, the picture? The angel stops him. Don't do this. I now see that you have the faith to do what I ask you to. And then draws his attention to something stuck in the bushes. A ram. That was offered instead. Its blood was shed. Not Isaac's. Here again we have another picture. The one who's guilty of sin isn't paying. But something that isn't guilty of the sin is paying. In this case it's an animal. It's not a human. So we keep moving through scripture. We see the story of Abraham and Isaac. And even the mountain that was. That took place on was named. The Lord shall provide. Of course he would. Through the process of time, this one known as the Messiah. So in the Old Testament, let's make sure we're learning as we're exploring. Judgment requires blood. Because death is a bloody sentence, right? So every time sins needed to be atoned for in the Old Testament, an animal had to die, spill its blood in order to cover the sins. What we're seeing there in the beginning is terms theologically that we describe as substitution. Ever had a substitute in school? That's not your real teacher. It's another teacher. Usually you mistreat the substitute, don't you? That's a substitution. There's also atonement, which is paying for. That's, that's, that's an accounting term, even a judicial term. That The price has been paid for the crime that is committed, but the atonement is made by someone other than the one actually guilty of the crime. So in the New Testament, we still see clearly the use of the word sword as a term of judgment. If we were to go all through the Old Testament, and we're, we're again exploring those 445 uses of the word sword or knife. 
Paul says in verse 4 of Romans 13, For he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Again, God's wrath. And he actually delegates this to governments. This is capital punishment Paul is talking about. We understand this. We live by it. Certain crimes are met with certain judgments. And capital punishment is reserved to those who have taken life. Their lives are taken. We even see this in the New Testament. But let's go back to Jesus. Because Simeon is, of course, talking about Jesus. And this life that would cause some to rise and others to fall. The sign of his coming would be stumbled over and rejected by some. And then there's this business of the sword and Mary's soul. In verse 34 of Matthew 10, Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. You say, wait a minute. You were talking the other day about John 3.16 and then John 3.17 where Jesus says, I have not come to this world to condemn the world, but through him they might be saved. It's actually John commentating on the discussion between him and Nicodemus. So which is it? Well, Maybe this is exactly what Simeon was saying. His coming here is not going to bring peace. In fact, some of the most bloodiest wars are going to have to do with the concepts that Jesus is going to bring with him when he comes to earth. A sword is most likely to be seen in the wake of the truth that Jesus brings to this planet. That's what he's saying. But then if we kept reading further, looking for that word sword, at his betrayal and his arrest... You remember in the garden after they left the upper room? You've got all those things that were said, including things we read at funerals, where he talks about, do not be dismayed, do not fear. I've prepared a place for you. If I go away, I'll come back. You'll be with me later. Eventually they arrive at the garden of Gethsemane where Judas is there waiting and the authorities are coming and they attempt to actually take Jesus into custody. And then there's Peter. And he'd already been told he didn't need his sword. What does he do? He pulls it out. He takes off the ear of one of those guards, which Jesus puts back. But what does Jesus say to him? This is Matthew uh, 26. Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Verse 52, then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. As if to say, this is not how this is going to go down, Peter. You're still thinking that this is a battle and I'm going to win. It's not how it's going to work. There's another way. The sacrificial system has been building up for this The prophets have been building up for this. All the stories are pointing to this one thing that it looks as if everybody involved are going to miss. They're not going to understand it. When Isaiah 53 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, that's Jesus. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to a slaughter to have a knife open its throat and bleed it dead. 
And like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. So at this point, nobody knows what's going on. They don't get that yet. Sure, they get that Jesus is the Messiah. Sure, they get that he's different than any. Sure, they get that he speaks with authority and not like the scribes. Sure, they get that he's performing miracles. Even bringing a fellow from dead to alive again. But nobody sees the cross as being the ultimate sacrifice to fulfill all that was done from all the turtle doves and all the bulls and all the goats and all the lambs. All of that was just a picture. There's going to be one final substitute, one final sacrifice for the sins of the whole world for those who believe in this by faith. Jesus himself is going to do it. And this is not what they could see. He was to atone for their sins and to do so by his death. What they wouldn't see or what they couldn't see was this truth that he would take the sword of his father's judgment. Not take it up to use it. It would be used on him. Do you remember that part in the comments from last week or the Saturday two previous That God was honest enough, courageous enough to take his own medicine. The God who would put a flaming sword at the edge of the Garden of Eden planned on using that sword, not on Adam and Eve, but on his only begotten son. That the one who would pronounce judgment on sin, death, would actually taste death for the world that he came to save. That's what's building here. That's what's coming together. It was his blood that would be spilled. It was his life that would be taken. His shoulders bearing the guilt and incurring the judgment. Substitutionally. Just like the sacrifices. They didn't see it. And really I think we probably ought to give Mary, Joseph, the brothers of Jesus, the disciples a break. I don't know that we would see it either. We're looking at this 2,000 years removed. and We've got the rest of the New Testament to go on. They didn't. His brother James that wrote James was not a believer until after Jesus had died. It was Mary and the rest of the family who came to Jesus at one point and said he was out of his mind. You've got to stop saying these things. They want you dead and we fear for our lives as well. She was ready to get in the way of the work he came to this earth to do. It was a wrong thing to do, but she didn't understand it at that point. And I'm not so sure we would have either. But if we're to put all this together, what's all this sword business have to do with Christmas? And when are you going to draw all this together so I know what you're after? Well, if we want to put all this together, we start in Genesis 1-1 where God pronounces death and trade for sin, which is disobedience against him. And we get our clear picture in John 3.16 where he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whosoever believeth does not need to perish, but can have everlasting life. So sin must be judged. We learned that in Genesis. The question is, on whom does the sword of judgment fall? And on whom does death lay its claim? On the guilty? Or on the sacrifice. As judge, Christ is the law, and He measures you, and you come up short. But as Savior, He's the gospel, where He dies in your place. So you're seen as 
in the eyes of God the same as God sees his only son who is sinless. So the point is you can run from him now and you will meet him as judge later. Or you can run to him now and that with joy because Romans 8 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment, no death, no sword for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So that theologically, conceptually, is, is the deal. The sacrifice isn't a goat or a turtle dove. It's the Son of God born in a manger we call this Christmas. And the question is whether or not you want that applied to your account for your sin covering. And where the author of Hebrews told us when we lit that candle that the blood of bulls and goats don't get it. Grammatically, I know that's not the way he said it. But we understand it that way, right? But the precious, sinless blood of God's only Son does. The question is whether it's been applied to your account. Because the fact that Jesus died doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is whether or not that blood's applied to your account. Your, your statement whether or not you're in debt with sin or it's been paid in full. And that takes place through faith and a conscious decision that you must make. But let's go back to Mary for a moment. We still haven't answered that question, have we? What does it mean? The sword surely couldn't fall on Mary. Not the flaming sword from the garden or the flaming sword in Revelation. But maybe this is some type of a metaphor. Maybe something else altogether. Because sometimes in the Bible the sword is described as sorrow. And Jesus was a man acquainted with sorrow and grief. He told us that we would have the same thing. People hated him, he would hate us. Certainly it would be sorrowful for Mary to watch her son die. But I want to show you another sword in scripture. You may say this is stretching it. I'll let you be the judge of that. You're smart people. You can choose for yourself. But in Hebrews 4.12, we've been through this passage before, some of us. It says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and is discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of him with whom we must give an account. So there's a sort of judgment that ends in death for those that have rejected the claims of Jesus and his grace. But there's also described this sword that is more like a scalpel, a surgical sword that opens you just enough for you to see what's inside so that you know that you need a savior, that you know that you're not perfect, that you know you need light, you are darkness. That's a complete different sword altogether, isn't it? If you could keep those both open, you might be able to see the resemblance. But let me just read it to you again. Part of that in the end of verse 12 in Hebrews 4, this sharper than any two-edged sword of the word of God is for the purpose of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, right? That's what the word of God does. It exposes to you your, your, your motivation 
The things inside your head that you hope nobody else ever knows. The most painful thing you could imagine is for somebody to get into your brain and read your thoughts. Because you're ashamed of so many of those things. The Bible opens that up. It's, 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 it's within the Lord's jurisdiction to read your mind, to read your soul. Now, if we went back to what is told Mary, a sword will pass through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Boy, those are the same words, almost just in a different order. Okay, the discerning, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the two-edged sword of God's word. And then this sword to pierce through her own soul also that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Maybe the way to look at this would be to put it this way. There is a sword that's not unto death. But it's not without its pain, its piercing, It's division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It's an interview, an autopsy perhaps of those dead in sin to expose what's there for the purpose of Christ's death so that you know what's going on. I believe every person who's ever saved must see the fact that they are truly lost first. There dawns on a person That even the love of God kept him on the cross to pay for the sins of the world. But what do you suppose put him on the cross? It was our sins. It should have been us. We needed that. We deserved that. His justice was hanging in the balance. If he doesn't punish sin, he's not God. He's not righteous. He can't sweep it under the rug. But he took it for himself. Why would he do that? But then look back at the passage with with Mary. I think the most intriguing word of all of it is, and sword will pass through your own soul also. As if to clear up any doubt, perhaps for Mary, that Mary, there are other people that are going to be pierced by this sword of sorrow. But you too. You also. Others will, but you're not excluded. So it might be one thing to watch the death of your own son as the mother who brought the light of the world into this planet only to later in time, probably much later, realize that she was just as responsible for his death as anyone else. That she needed his blood As much as anybody else. That it was her sins on his shoulders. The same as anybody else. I don't know about you. But the depths of sorrow that no man will understand. Would be the realization that a mother has caused their child pain. That's a sort of sorrow. And maybe the next thing like unto it would be. A child of God. Realizing That they've hurt their father. Disappointed him. Fallen short of his expectations. So when we read the 23rd Psalm. And we read the words that we need not fear. That only comes after what is described as the shadow of death. 
It's not death. It's just the shadow of it. But the shadow of death is a fearful thing. And we've lived long enough, most of us in this room, to be able to see as we live our life that this thing called death swallows up much of the life on this planet that God intended for life. But it's been marred, it's been broken, it's been messed up. This place is dark, this place is dead. We need a light. But before we ever understand that the light is for us, There's that part of the gift that you've got to take. You've got to understand it. You need it. You've got to understand that that was for you. That's the uncomfortable part. That's the gift that's hardest to take because it's the most needed. And it doesn't involve a box with stuff in it. It involves the son of the living God who came here for you. Here's the point of the message this morning. Before their salvation, I believe, there's the sword that pierces your soul. And this morning, you know if it has. You know if it hasn't. Perhaps today you've been pierced. You see it. You get it. All that was for me. Along with Mary, his mother, in need of a Savior. With that said, let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the study of your word. And we thank you for the opportunity to answer the call of salvation. We're so thankful that you present it to us as an offer. So the question, Lord, we ask ourselves this morning, have we been pierced through, not as unto death, lest of course we reject you, but the piercing of sorrow. Lord, we ask ourselves, whether or not we trust in our own righteousness or the righteousness of Christ on our behalf. Lord, I ask this morning that those who are not, who are thinking through your truth, that you would give them the light of salvation, that you would save their soul. Lord, thank you for the gift of Christmas. And Lord, may we be bold enough to ask That over the next few hours, as we meet with those that do not know you, you would give us a window to tell others the most important thing in the whole world, that you came to save sinners. We thank you so much for these things and for this time to gather together near what we call Christmas, purpose of fixing our gaze on you, on scripture, on grace. Lord, we just ask that you enable it not to return void. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Heavenly Father, God, we, uh, we thank you for this season. And Lord, we, just, we are reminded today through this um, sermon that we listen to today, God, that you are the light through your Son, Christ, who you sent to this earth, God. And it's through his birth and ultimate death that hope was given for the future, God. And God, today we lift up our mission of the week, House of Hope in Clayton, Lord, as they provide guidance and housing for young teen girls, God, as uh, they minister and worship to them with the hope that they will be reunited with their families, God. And especially this time of year, we lift up these young ladies and anyone else who's in a situation like this, God. We just pray for for their lives and for their future, God, that they would know you and love you and trust you, Lord. 
And God, as we go from here today and we prepare to celebrate Tuesday this season, God, that we are reminded why we celebrate this time, Lord. And as we exchange gifts from one another, that we're reminded of the ultimate gift that was given to us, Lord, in eternal life with the acceptance of your son, God. Lord, we ask that you just keep us close to your heart this week, Lord. Keep us safe and allow us to honor and glorify you in all that we do. And we ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.